All right. Well, uh, good morning. Glad that you are tuning in to another Rock Creek Church uh, Sunday church service. Uh, it is in our family room, but uh, you are joining us from uh, maybe your car, your living room, your bedroom, your kitchen, uh, your basement, uh, outside, hopefully, in the coming weeks. Um, but we're glad that you're joining us. I think of Helen and Benji out in Virginia. I think of Jim in California, Karen uh, in Oregon. Uh, let's see, uh, Barbara and Ed joining us on a regular basis. Uh, so Sergio, uh, glad that you're jumping on here uh, and joining us. Excited for that. Uh, tomorrow is Ben Bulow's birthday, and so uh, make sure you give him a huge shout out. He's behind the control board, uh, manning the camera and the sound, so we're excited for Ben. And then Alex's anniversary was yesterday, and I believe, uh, or is it today? It's today. Sorry. Six years. Six years? Six years today. Uh, and so super exciting things happening in the life of our church, even though we're separate, things still happen. Uh, and so we want to celebrate all of those things in the midst. So uh, this morning, we are uh, really, really excited to begin this new uh, series where we're really jumping into the uh, foundation that's rooted in hope and and really hope that things will get better around us. Uh, we have the obvious that we face today, but but there's also a hope that we're going to experience peace and joy and happiness as well. And so that's where we're kind of going. And all of those things are found in the Bible. Uh, if you study the scriptures, if you turn the pages, if you look to what the Bible says, everything that we're looking for is found in these pages. And so I would love, 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 here's my soapbox uh, passionate request. Please get a Bible somewhere in your house, order it on Amazon, go to Christian Book Distributor somewhere, get a Bible, get a marker and a pen or a pencil and be willing to mark up uh, the book of 1 Peter that we're going to be diving into for the next several weeks. My hope is that if you've never taken the time or, or had someone lead you through a study of a book, that this will at least be one that you will know like the back of your hand at the end of this series as we really dig into the content. So if you haven't done that, you can hit pause uh, on your TV or your computer, run and grab your Bible, hit play, and join us on that. And the reason why, and this is just a side note, the reason why we study the scriptures is because when we do that, it reveals our blind spots. Uh, if, if you are a new driver, one of the biggest things you learn is there's things in your blind spots that you can't see. And the scriptures really do reveal our blind spots. We don't know everything. We can't see everything. And so it gives us hope. It modifies our actions and our reactions to whatever life throws at us, and it fills us with hope. And that hope is rooted in the plan that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And so uh, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We're going to kick things off. It's really at the tail end of the Bible, and so you can turn to that. And First Peter has been one of my greatest anchors in my ups and down battles 
with hope that I've experienced in my life. And I believe First Peter has the power, and this is a powerful statement, but it does have the power to change your life. And I don't say that lightly. I mean that because it, it is uh, a foundational book for us in how to navigate through life's storms. And so we've uh, titled this series over a year ago, Hope in the Midst of Chaos. And it seems like God had a really good intention for this series when he put it on our heart and we titled it. And so we hope that it's a huge blessing to you. So let's begin this lengthy, in-depth journey into understanding Peter's epistle. Only two verses this morning. So we're going we're gonna to just rush through this book. Uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Before we read that, I want you to imagine. Imagine that you're a Christian living in the midst of tremendous pressure from every direction as a first century Christian. In your best moments, You grit your teeth and you complain about the Lord's delayed return. That's in your best moments. In your worst moments, you consider going back to the familiar roots and rituals of the synagogues or even returning to those idol-filled temples. At one of your dissolution moments, somebody hands you a rolled-up, bound scroll and you slowly break open the seal, and you unroll the scroll, and you immediately read these powerful words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you suddenly realize that the great apostle, a a personal friend of Jesus Christ, has written a letter to you. And all of a sudden, time pauses, and you realize the magnitude, you realize the weight of that letter, and it feels heavy, and you can't wait to gather other Christ followers to read its content. And the question is, why? And the answer, because hope has arrived. That's how these Christians would have received this letter from Peter. So let's do this. If you, if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 1, and we'll go through verse 2. Here's the word of the Lord. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners, or your version might say exiles, in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. So that's it. That's our passage for this morning. And I want to reiterate over and over and over again The reason why we're only taking these two verses is because it's a critical foundation for the rest of the epistle. If we don't get this morning right, if we don't fully grasp 
uh, what's going on in these first few sentences of the epistle, then we're going to miss the rest of the letter. We're going to miss the points because they're all built on the foundation of these two sentences. It happens again and again throughout the entire New Testament. The true greatness and wonder of a passage lies not only on the surface, not only on exactly what is said, but in the ideas and the convictions that lie behind it or underneath it, out of which what is written. And this letter of Peter's is written towards the end of his life. He's lived a rough life. And it's towards the end. He's written in Rome uh, around the 50s and 60s uh, as of the date. And the days and the nights walking with Jesus are still very near and dear to his heart. So he's not writing from an academic standpoint. He's writing out of a real experience with Jesus Christ. And unlike Paul's letters that are written to very specific faith communities, Peter's epistle is to a broad community of believers, of diaspora, those who are, have been displaced. And, and it's written throughout Northern Asia Minor. You're going to see a map of this. You'll see the different locations that are on here throughout Asia Minor. Major faith communities that spread, get this, all of these different faith communities that re would receive this epistle cover roughly 300,000 miles of land. And that's where this epistle is going to travel. And, and notice that in these two first verses, the word hope isn't even mentioned. And if you look throughout the entire epistle, it's only mentioned five times. And yet those five moments are significant clusters of teaching. First century Christians are the receiver of this epistle. They're not being murdered. There's no mass destruction. There's no mass persecution going on for these Christ followers. They are receiving it in what would be today modern-day Turkey. And these Christians were being ostracized, left out, marginalized because of their robust faith in Jesus Christ. That's the recipients of this epistle. Now, the first century world was obviously different than our Western world that we experience today. But the contempt, the contempt that is very similar to what they experienced is also very similar to what we experience today as Christ followers. And so Peter, because of that, because of how their life is conditioned, Peter doesn't begin with a very casual hello. He doesn't begin with pleasantries. He doesn't tiptoe into the water. No, he does a deep dive into theological truths and very, very rich themes. Why? Because he doesn't have time to do small talk. He dives into some serious depths. And he begins by saying that the way you relate to culture isn't what you do, it's who you are. And the same could be said and ought to be said to you and I today. The way that we relate to culture isn't what we do, 
It's who we are. It's understanding our identity. That's why these two verses are so crucial for understanding the rest of the letter. Because two things become very clear in these opening sentences. Number one, you are in exile. And number two, you are chosen. And Peter wants to make this abundantly clear, and I want to make it abundantly clear to you because the same is said for you and I as Christ followers. We are living in exile, and we have been chosen. And if you like CIA espionage movies like Sandy and I do, we love those those deep uh, thriller movies and TV shows. What Peter is saying is that you have a secret mission, but you also have a safe house. It's kind of like Jason Bourne-esque if you like those movies. I personally do. But, But that's kind of what Peter is trying to reinforce is you're in exile. You have a mission, but you have a safe house. Now, here's where the analogy breaks down. The safe house wasn't very safe for Jason Bourne, so understand that. I don't need you to text me and go, hey, your whole idea of Jason Bourne fell through because he was killed or tried to be killed in all of his safe houses. I get that. I understand it. But nevertheless, think about a perfect world in CIA espionage. Okay, let's continue. So this morning, I want to focus on our mission as to live as exiles. What exactly does that mean? The term exile refers to a a temporary resident living in a foreign land. Uh, Let's say you were to pick up today, you've been given a mission, and you're going to go live in Istanbul. Okay, So you are in exile there. Peter is saying that you're not a tourist, you are not a native, You are a foreigner living in a foreign land that is not your own. And those believers were in exile, not because they were displaced from their home, but it says that they were chosen to be displaced. The reason why this is important is because in the Greco-Roman time that this epistle is given, most people didn't live in their place of origin of birth. So it wasn't a a foreign idea to be a foreigner. It was something that was very frequently known to be in existence. But Peter wants you to understand that this isn't by circumstance. You have been chosen to be in exile because of your strange countercultural beliefs and faith in Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the word Exile is used more like a metaphor, a figure of speech to describe us as Christ followers. Why? Because as Christ followers, both then and now, our allegiance wasn't to a king, our allegiance isn't to a country or a president or a political power or anything else. Our allegiance is to our Heavenly Father, and that places you in a position of being in exile. The implication is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. So just turn one page over, and we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. This is um, the heartbeat of these two sentences. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners or exiles to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. 
then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. This means if you are anywhere living in the world, you are in exile uh, as a Christ follower, you will be both praised and accused. You will be accused of being stubborn and wrong and holding certain morals that are different from this world. And at the same time, you will be praised because those who are accusing you will see your heart. This is what it means to live in exile. That you will be kind and patient and being put, put others first. It's both and. It's praised and accused. Now, shifting gears just a tiny bit, I want you to see that the idea of living in exile is a crucial Old Testament concept in Israel's history. And this is all going to tie together, so just keep walking with me. The study of the Old Testament is, shows two significant periods, and those two periods actually affect your life. You may not know that, but the two periods uh, of, of the Old Testament will affect your life today. The first is the Jerusalem period. If you're taking notes, you can write that down maybe in the, the margins of your Bible. The first is the Jerusalem period. It's the golden age of Israel. It's the, it's the roaring time of Israel. It's the time of King David and, and King Solomon. It's the time of beautiful buildings and where the entire world came to one central location to see the sights and to hear the wisdom and to hear the truth spoken. In, in fact, the entire world was drawn to the things of God. And there was both political and social support for one God. This is the Jerusalem period. But as you may have guessed, or maybe you've read the Old Testament scriptures, that time doesn't last very long. Because that leads us then into our second period, and that is the exilic period. Israel is in exile. Its people are scattered all over the world into pagan countries. And they're scattered most notably to the brutal, persecuted, harsh, horrendous land of Babylon. Two very distinct periods in the Old Testament. Why is this important? Because what Peter says is that as Christ followers, we are called to embrace not the Jerusalem period, not the Jerusalem perspective, but the exilic period, the exilic perspective. That's what we live in. That's what we live in today. We are exiled disciples without the comfort and peace and favor, without a world of our own. We are living in a world who does not come to Christ followers for wisdom. The world does not come to the church to stand in awe of the things of God. In fact, the world stays at a distance, the exilic period. That's the period that we live in. And Peter says that we are to, in 2020, embrace our role as those living in exile. Embrace our role as foreigners living in a land that this isn't our home. And that's okay. A land that's in chaos. A land that's broken. A land that's sick. 
this is how First Peter, this epistle, would arrive to the readers. It sounds very similar to today. It sounds similar to today, not even just currently with what we're dealing with, but even before then. We look at the news, we look at entertainment, we look at spending, we look at uh, sexual behavior, we look at political behavior, and we just go, man, this world is broken. It's doing its own thing. It doesn't want it, the things of God. It's the exilic period for the Christ follower. And yet this is super important because we don't despair. And not only do we not despair, but we don't despise our culture. That's not what Christ followers do. And I'll, I'll admit to you today, it's easy to do. It's easy to despise our culture. When all you see is sinful behavior, sinful thinking, sinful thought, it's easy to, to live in despair and to despise. I get it. But what Peter is saying is that's not what we do. The mission is to engage culture that we have differences with. That's what we're supposed to do, to love our neighbor, to love our culture, not point fingers at it. Now, we're going to shift again to the, to the third part of this. And I want to invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is, boy, it's almost like halfway through the Bible, a little bit to the right. But open up to the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to be in Jeremiah 29 for the remainder of our time. And the reason why we're turning to Jeremiah to understand 1 Peter is Jeremiah was written, especially chapter 29, was written specifically to the elders and priests and prophets, the people who have been exiled uh, into Babylon from King Nebuchadnezzar. So if you're looking for uh, a child's name, you're pregnant, you're going to have a boy, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is available. So this is why we're looking at that. This is a letter giving instruction on how do we live in exile. And in this passage, we learn three things about those Christians who live in exile. Number one, exiles thrive. This is so important for us. Exiles thrive. We don't hang our head. We don't feel depressed. We don't look at culture and, and then go sulk in a corner. Exiles thrive. So look with me at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 6. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives. He has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Notice it says he exiled them. They didn't just happen to be exiled. He exiled them. He says this, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food that they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren multiply, do not dwindle away. In other words, thrive in the place where I have brought you, in the place where I have allowed you to live, thrive. Don't point fingers at culture. Don't turn on the TV and, and notice everything that's wrong. Thrive with where I have placed you. As Christians, we embrace culture. We don't isolate. We don't have our own holy huddles. 
We don't just have our own holy friends or our own holy Bible studies. We embrace culture. We embrace our neighbor across the street. We embrace our neighbor next door. We embrace and engage with the people that we work with. We don't despise it. We don't separate it, but we settle in it and embrace culture. And what we learn here, friends, and I say this with every bit of love that I can muster because I truly do love you, but this is very, very important to say, that to the extent that you understand what it means to live in exile as a Christ follower will make or break your living in culture. It will go from just something that's happening to me, and I just happen to live during this time, to where if you understand what it means to be a Christ follower living in exile, then you will understand the mission and how unbelievably important that is to God. Number two, exiles don't compromise. We don't compromise. This is the idea of being in the world, not of the world. We don't compromise our behavior. We don't compromise our thoughts. We don't compromise our opinions or our convictions. We live in love, but we don't compromise. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 29 now in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. It's a long time. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. Verse 11, this, this is cross-stitched in people's houses. It's their backdrop. It's a poster. Uh, it's their saying. But a lot of people don't understand where the context for verse 11 comes from. Now you do. It's written to a people who are in exile living a very difficult life. And here's what he says in verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not disaster, to give you a future and hope, per parenthetically, in the midst of exile. Verse 12. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you. Again, notice how he's taking ownership of the circumstances. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your land. We're like but we're unlike. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. In other words, we don't lose our message. We certainly don't lose our message when the world is in crisis. That's when the message becomes even louder and more clear because people are more receptive. They've realized that their ways break down during uh, a, a pandemic, for instance their ideas of reasoning, and they're more open to the understandings of God, to embrace and to engage in it. We don't lose our audience. The church and the message of Jesus matters to the world around us when we are in the midst of chaos. There's hope, and we don't compromise those messages. I think of Joseph with the sultry Potiphar's wife, that his world is in chaos. He is 
being tempted by uh, every angle. And Potiphar's wife, um, the ruler, this beautiful bride, wants, uh, there's kids listening, wants some time with Joseph. And he doesn't compromise. He doesn't compromise his morals. He doesn't compromise his mission. I, I think of Daniel in the lion's den facing excruciating pain of being thrown into a den of lions. But he doesn't compromise when the world around him is in chaos. And for you and I, we don't compromise when the world around us is in chaos. Today, the temptation that we face is a phrase that both those who study sociology and psychology and even theology will refer to this as individual autonomy. That's what we're faced with today. Individual autonomy, this self-fulfilling, self-propping up, self-definition, personal happiness. I know my way. I can do it. I have my beliefs. No one else can tell me otherwise. And even... Uh, great-hearted Christ followers can compromise their beliefs with the temptation of individual autonomy because these are the things that increasingly drive people's life and we end up looking for more because we know that individual autonomy doesn't work. We're seeing this today with social distancing and shelter in place we're realizing our need for others, that my own individual autonomy, my own individual thinking only takes me so far, and now I need other people. I need other wisdom. I need other insights. And it's not working because everything isn't meant for the individual. It's not why we were wired. I'll give you an example. Think of a marriage this way. If you have one partner in a marriage that every day wakes up and thinks, me first, how long do you think that marriage is going to last before things begin to crumble? Everything from picking a meal to extracurricular activities to what we watch on TV or who does the chores or when someone rests or, or how the money is spent. If an individual is thinking me first at all times, that marriage is bound to dissolve over time. Now think of it in a different way. Think of that same marriage, and both individuals are thinking you first. Your pleasures, your needs, your pains, your joys. Thinking about the other first, all of a sudden you will have a marriage that's strong and healthy and, and, and reflects and models the heart of Jesus. And it's the same thing when we're in exile, when, when we have a world around us that's in chaos. It's not me first. It's my neighbor first. It's my friend first. It's my other family members first. It's the church first, not me. Jesus said, you first. He didn't say me first. The only time Jesus said me first is when it came to the cross. And he didn't say me first. He said me only. That I will take the place for you. I will lay my life down for you. It's the epitome, the perfect definition 
of love. And so as Christ followers, our identity is we don't compromise during chaos. The third thing that we realize uh, in this exilic period is that exilic disciples love. That, that when the world around us is in chaos, we love. Read with me Jeremiah 29, verse 7. It says this, And work for the peace, if you have a pen, circle that word peace, and prosperity, or whatever those two words are in your version, and, for, and work for the peace and prosperity of the, of the city, and underline this, where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is perhaps the most shocking statement in the entire chapter of 29. Jeremiah says we must first love the culture that despises us. We must first love the culture. I'll give you my experience. We must first love the culture that kicks us off their Facebook page because we mentioned church. I've had that three times. I've been outlawed for six days for mentioning church. Well, we don't despise that culture. And trust me, that's a temptation. But we love that culture. He also says that we don't pretend to love. We actually love and we pray that culture would thrive. That others would be served. That, that others would be cared for. That others would be loved and that, that others eventually would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is the heartbeat of the church during good times and in bad, but it is certainly the hope of the church in the midst of chaos. The thought is you don't focus solely inward because the reality is if there isn't a portion of your focus that's focused outward, then you're missing what it means to live in exile because you didn't just happen upon it. God chose you. God brought you there. He brought you there with a mission. You are living on this planet in Colorado or in Virginia or in Oregon or in California or in Texas or in Arizona, wherever you're watching us or listening today, you live on April 19th, 2020, wherever you are, not by circumstances, you're there for a reason. You're there for a mission if you are a Christ follower. And so how do we do these things? Look back at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He says, God the Father knew you, and he chose you long ago, and his Spirit has made you holy. And as a result, you have obeyed him and been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I love this. You have been chosen by the living God. He has called your name. The reason Peter states that we choose God is because God chose us before the foundation of the world and gave a mission to us. Uh, turn with me to the book of John. Uh, just a few pages to your left. John chapter 6, verse 44. 
It's also going to be up on the screen. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And, and at the last day, I will raise them up. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. Peter says this is the only way you are going to survive cultural attacks, specifically regarding your faith your allegiance to Jesus Christ. This is the only way that you are going to survive alienation or, or not being invited to a party or, or not having certain friends in high school or middle school or college because of your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the only way that you're going to survive that depression and anxiety because of being alienated, because your faith is in Jesus Christ and you have been called. It's because you understand that your confidence isn't in the world around you being nice and neat and tidy. Yes, even in the midst of chaos, your hope and your foundation can be secured in the sovereignty of your God and your Father who chose you to be on mission. Because our hope is not in our earthly status. Our hope is in our heavenly, eternal status. Those are two very different things. Where we wake up in the morning, where we place our hope. One place it's not, it's on shaky ground. And the other is on ground that cannot be broken. It cannot be shaken, no matter what life throws at us. This is life-giving hope for people who have been cut down by culture and are living in exile. That's 1 Peter. And for many of us, that's today. Peter is establishing in the opening sentences here that God is your safe house for your mission. That he's your safe place. And this is so powerful. Please don't miss this. This is an incredibly powerful point that, that Peter gives us in these two sentences. And really just verse 2. Because all three members of the Trinity are involved in it. That's how much you matter. All three members of the Trinity. It's the work of God in and for you. God the Father foreknows, God the Spirit sanctifies, and God the Son cleanses. Another way to say it is God the Father is creator, God the Son is redeemer, and God the Spirit is sanctifier. That is, he doesn't just clean up the old life. He doesn't just grab a sponge and throw some soap on you and clean you up, but he actually introduces the person to a whole new life, making him or her holy. That's incredible that every member of the Trinity is involved in you. That's how much you matter. All members. And verse 2, verse two shouts, this is how much God loves you. This is how much your mission as those living in exile matter to him. This is your identity. This is where you find hope in the midst of chaos or uncertainty. Not on what is seen, but what is unseen. The Bible teaches that we have been saved. The Bible teaches that we have been rescued, that we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. 
not just sprinkled, but literally poured out on Good Friday. And it served as a covering of the throne of God to make right you and me. That is, it was a symbol. It was a symbol of the covering of our sins by the blood of sacrifice. Symbolism carried out on the Day of Atonement pointed beyond the Old Testament to the sacrifice that was made once and for all in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. It wasn't sprinkled. It was a fire hydrant of blood to cover up your sin, to make you right, and to give you hope. And our hope as believers must rise above the events of the day. Our hope as believers must rise up against and and above the events of online school, of dishes, of laundry, of infighting within marriages, of financial problems, of addictions, of being pulled by the waves of the world by buying into false hope and false truths. It must be bigger than these things. We must rely on the Lord and His sure promises. And the point of Peter's introduction in his epistle, to put it simply, is that Christ gives hope during hurtful, unknown, and unsettled times. It was true then, And it's true today. And as we dive deeper into this epistle, Peter's going to show us how. But it's so important that we understand that foundation first. Next week, Alex is going to jump into verses, I believe, 3 through 12. So if you want to prepare for next week, you can read that hope of eternal life built on the foundation that we just covered this morning. Uh, Heather is going to be leading us in worship, Lord willing. Uh, And so you're not going to want to miss next week. Uh, Alex's message is going to be incredible. And Heather leading us in worship is going to be powerful and beautiful and energetic and loud Uh, because we love Heather. And so she'll be here and she'll be leading us. Alex will be teaching. You have an incredible opportunity. Love one. Love one. Love your God and love one other person. Draw them here. Draw them, invite them, follow up with them. But there is true hope here. There is truth that is going to be delivered that can actually change someone's life good stuff. First Peter, hope in the midst of chaos. Let's pray. So God, we are uh, eternally grateful for the scriptures that give us hope and direction. So much richness found in two verses. Can't imagine uh, those first century Christ followers to open up the scroll and to see Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Hope has arrived. How cool. And we too, we open up the scriptures and we see hope delivered to us in the midst of chaos. For for those who are struggling today, 
who are alone, who are afraid, whose marriages are struggling, who are out of work, who are mourning the loss of senior year, who are struggling to find some redemption and some self-worth in the midst of this, who are going stir-crazy at home that have literally exhausted everything on Netflix and Prime. I pray today in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would deliver something to them that's more than a song. It's more than a movie. It's, it's more than self-worth. It's foundational truth found only in you. And because of that, you would strengthen the church. This we pray in Christ's name.